The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? What is it like to be a journalist in China? It's a line of work that in the West means upholding freedom of speech and holding the government to account. But for obvious reasons, the same can't be true in China. So what is the everyday life of a journalist there like? How often do they get briefed by the government on what they can and can't say? And are they all just mouthpieces for propaganda or are there various degrees of independence? To answer this question, I'm joined today by political scientist Maria Repnikova from Georgia State University, who's the author of Media Politics in China, and Feng Kuchen, assistant professor in journalism at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, and formerly a journalist in mainland China himself. So welcome to the podcast, both. Maria, to start with, perhaps you can give us an idea of the landscape, the media landscape in China. What does it look like? Who are the main players? Um, sure. Well, first of all, this landscape has changed quite a bit in recent years, but I think overall, just to kind of give a bit of a preview of what it looks like, I think the common perception in the West is that we have this kind of very monolithic media system in China where there's just very few party-owned outlets that kind of dominate the scene or that the party controls every single message on social media. That's kind of often a comical perception of how things work. But if you look at it uh, from the inside, you see that there is quite a bit of diversity. It doesn't mean there's always diversity of opinion, but there's diversity of how some stories are framed or presented or what's being covered. So first kind of group of outlets are party-owned media, national media, so CGTN or CCTV, uh, Remin Rabao, some of the national outlets that are kind of, you know, capturing the voices of the party. Xinhua News, of course, is at the helm of that as being the kind of the so-called mouthpiece in a way of the party. And a lot of its stories get copied and transmitted to other outlets, especially crisis events and kind of very sensitive stories. Xinhua tends to kind of lead the way. So if you want to find out what's going on kind of on the official side, I often go to Xinhua News kind of first to see how they're covering a certain story. But then kind of beneath that layer of, you know, party-owned national media outlets, there are also commercialized or semi-commercialized outlets. We don't want to call them fully commercialized because they're not completely private. So if we compare China to Russia, for instance, in Russia, we have completely private media that are very critical of the government. But in China, the most kind of commercialized or the highest level of commercialization they, they got was 49%. So that means that 51% stake is still very much captured by the party. So that's important to note because it's often also easy to slip into the territory of thinking, oh, they're commercialized, so they're you know, independent or free, but in reality, they're also still economically and politically controlled. So those semi-commercialized outlets, we've known a lot about them you know, through 2000s, especially prior to Xi Jinping era. You know, Ke Chang was actually working at one of them, Nanfang Zhongmo. Southern Weekly is very famous and has done incredible reporting on all kinds of issues, from economics to societal issues in particular, highlighting a lot of people's voices that don't get captured or don't get transmitted through official channels. So we have the Southern Media Group, then there were also Caixin Magazine that eventually transformed into kind of Caixin. They're both existing still, but Caixin is more powerful. 
in its coverage. And those were kind of dominating the scene. There's also Xin Jingbao in Beijing that's, I think, still you know doing some good reporting, but not as strong as it used to be, and a few others. So there's kind of the semi-commercial space of journalists who tend to know each other, I think, pretty well as a circle of people, kind of a community of people that I've interacted with in my book and in my work who are very impressive and very interesting and quite, you know, savvy and bold as well, surviving in that climate. So I think that's that's a really important layer of journalists. And again, they're not dissidents, they're not against the state, but they're very carefully crafting messages and stories that don't often make it in other outlets. So those are, that's another layer. And more recently, and we'll talk about this later uh, with Kochang, is we have an emergence of outlets that are semi-critical and sort of semi-independent, uh, one could say, but that's a bit of a strong word, but they are completely owned by the, the party state. So in this case, they're owned by the local state, and this is due to the digital kind of transformation of journalism in China, and this Peng Pai is the key example of that. So there's an interesting kind of almost like you know, return to the past where it's like first we had some semi-commercialization and then it's back to kind of having a full stake, but it doesn't mean that it's fully, fully kind of controlled as far as messages go. So that's kind of a bit of a twist in recent years under C. Um, and finally, there's social media, of course. That's kind of huge, huge space. <laughs> Weibo, Weixin, and some self-media, Zimeiti, but also um, citizen journalists and just people speaking out on various issues. So that's just a, it's a very broad, you know, overview. But I think it's important to highlight that there are different levels of ownership, different levels of critique, and different levels of consumption. And what's available to citizens, I think, is increasingly consumed on social media. So that, that's something that's, you know, the reality of today versus the past where you buy newspapers like anywhere else. Everything is consumed online. So, Very interesting. Thank you, Maria. Kirchen, can I start by asking you then what it was like to work at Nevon Jomor with Southern Weekly, uh, one of these more commercialized and relatively more independent but still majority state-owned papers? Uh, yes, so uh, Southern Weekly was known for its investigative pieces and uh, more diversified opinions. I worked there from 2010 to 2013. I, uh, to be honest, it was not the best years of Southern Weekly. So <laughs> the golden years, so-called golden years, the best years was around 2000, roughly from 1998 to 2008, roughly like that. So uh, during that time, there were a lot of very impressive investigative reporting, uh, exposing like, like local corruptions and scandals like that. When I worked there, I mainly uh, wrote for the uh, politics section and uh, sometimes we could do some interesting work, which I think is very important. Like uh, we have a section of feature called Common Sense, which is actually explain, it's, it's like explainers, explaining how politics work in China. Like what is a general secretary, right? What, is, what are the secretaries uh, in the Chinese political system? And uh, how are the uh, elections in China run? Like there are elections in China, right? So, so like this, we do. Uh, we did a lot of these kind of explainers. So, in starting from two thousand twelve, which was the year that uh, Xi Jinping came to power, the newspaper, like many other newspapers, were under greater pressure. So, uh, a lot of my former colleagues left the newspaper. During like 2013 and 14, I also left there in 2013. In your time there, in your everyday work, how would the presence of the party make itself be felt? You know, did you get, I mean, these might be some stupid questions to you, but I think foreign listeners would be interested to know, did you get daily briefings on what lines you could take or was it more retroactive censorship mm-hmm. or how, how did that come about? Yeah, we, we are a, new, a weekly newspaper. It's like a magazine. 
which means that editors actually took a more important role inside the newspaper. So as journalists, I did not get daily briefings, but editors they did. So、uh, basically, they get orders from the newspaper group, which is a Southern Media Group, and that was sent to them by the Guangdong Provincial Propaganda Committee, which means that editors of of our newspaper would、uh, would get orders on what not to report and what are encouraged to report every day. And as journalists, we were given a relatively larger space. Because the editors always encouraged us to write down whatever we collected, and、uh, they will do the censorship. So they will make sure that nothing、uh, was like crossing the so-called red line. So、uh, I think that's a good way to collaborate, right? Because as journalists, our role was to collect information, right? So we should not、uh, constrain ourselves when we collect、uh, those information. And、uh, for editors, a large role for them is to actually to keep the so-called political safety of the newspaper, which means that they have to comply with the orders from the propaganda department and censor some part of the draft written by the journalists. And then also sometimes they would tell us that we should not cover certain topics. So yes, that's、uh, yes we do we do get、uh, censorship orders, but as journalists, the experience、uh, was different from those editors.、Mm. Maria Kerchen there mentions the topics, certain ones that were more off limits. Do you think that there is a hierarchy of sensitivity when it comes to Chinese journalists reporting that some topics are more sensitive than others, and so there's a You know, there's there's a certain amount of leeway. You talked about investigations into corruption, for example. Where do you think that line lies? That that red line, for example. Yeah, there's definitely a hierarchy of sensitivity, but in recent years, the hierarchies are not as I think clear or not not as transparent or static as they used to be. I think in the past and still today, there are certain topics that are completely off limits. So those topics, I think, are you know easily recognizable to most journalists in China who are in that more critical space. Whether it's challenging kind of the one-party state. System CCP system is at large, you know, the whole idea of one-party rule and Chinese Communist Party being at the helm of that, or challenging any kind of territorial issues or disputes or sovereignty issues related to China, Chinese state. So Tibet, Xinjiang, obviously Hong Kong, Taiwan are extremely sensitive. But nowadays, you know, the gray zone in the past I think was quite a bit larger. So a lot of issues related to corruption, environmental degradation. Local governance, in particular, blaming local officials, you know, and local、mm-hmm. is a very, I think, a fluid concept in China because it's, provinces are huge. So if you're blaming a provincial <laughs> official, it's still pretty sensitive. So it's not like some kind of a local guy, you know, in the village. It's oftentimes a pretty high up person who is just not central governance spot, but he's still he or she is still pretty important. So local governance issues tend to be kind of at the heart of investigations. Today, I think there's these issues still matter, and we still see environmental issues being addressed. Sexual harassment and feminism became kind of a, a hot topic. Although some of these feminists have been reprimanded and even detained, so that's quickly evolved into more of a red zone topic. Of course, during the pandemic, we saw a lot of reporting on the crisis, and Taisin in particular, I think, has done an incredible job with their very long form articles that almost together compile into like a mini book of reports, reports that are very factual and. In depth, so crisis reporting is still, I think, feasible, but for a certain short window. So I think at the heart of it is really that there is still a gray zone, but it moves quickly, and、um, when the limits come in, you know, one cannot necessarily address these issues any longer, or you know, cannot address them for some time. Might might have to wait out censorship kind of directives and then try again. 
So it's not completely shut down, but it's just that the speed of control, censorship, and the kind of reactions are much quicker, especially online. So that creates a, a more intense negotiation and sometimes less room for negotiation for journalists. Kirchen, that sounds like a nightmarish situation for editors to be trying to navigate because on the one hand, you know, you're trying to encourage your journalists to go do good reporting. You're asking them to write everything down, uh, as you've explained. On the other hand, they have to answer to the higher ups. And, you know, what is in the mark scheme, what's in the red zone changes so fast in the way that Maria has just described. For editors, that's a tough job. Yes, sure. Uh, so uh, for Sunset Weekly, the editors are very, very experienced. Usually they work as a journalist for like five to 10 years before becoming an editor. So they gain experience and uh, gradually they also, uh, probably they would gain experience in dealing with propaganda officials. Because sometimes if you publish something that is considered as uh, off the red line. Uh, sometimes the propaganda department or the officials would ask editors to write a letter of apology to <laughs> the officials. So uh, it is during these kind of interactions that the editors gradually gain experience, gain knowledge of uh, what kind of topics are permitted. And also it varies in different times uh, of, the, of the year. For example, in early June, the editors should be mm-hmm. extremely cautious. You know why? Because that's the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square incident. And also uh, March is also considered as a sensitive time period because that's when the so-called two sessions the uh, NPC and uh, CPPCC, the two uh, annual political meetings in China, uh, were held in March. So that also was also a time of higher uh, political sensitivity. So yes, I should say that edit- being an editor in China means that you know quite well about how politics in China works. Mm. Uh, Maria, you mentioned the online and it was one of your categories of new media that you've got a so-called statepreneurship that you've written about in your latest paper. Can you talk a little bit about the state-sponsored move into digital media? Um, sure. Well, the research we focused on was looking into this idea of transforming or transitioning traditional media online and then kind of capturing this online space by the party because the information environment is changing and a lot of these traditional outlets are no longer feasible or read and the information environment is increasingly filled with entertainment and all kinds of other voices that can be consumed on social media. So it's harder to basically guide public opinion, which is one of the objectives of the party. How do you guide public opinion in the era of social media? It's kind of to try to create and recapture that space by opening up and sponsoring some of these outlets. And we looked at Pang Pai as one of the key examples because it was sort of a model for other outlets, which, you know, the experiences didn't necessarily succeed. But the idea was that the local state sponsors this endeavors, allows them to innovate, to do all kinds of creative things online, to report, but mostly on other regions, not their own, because that's more sensitive. So not so much about Shanghai, but other places. At the heart of kind of what we described, and I think Kachan can talk more about this, the state entrepreneurship model, was that the state both sponsors this initiatives, but also directs innovation. Yes, for example, the state is ordering this kind of experimental project to set up a thing called the central kitchen, mm-hmm. which means that, for example, in a media group, uh, which usually consists of uh, a dozen newspapers and magazines, they are setting up this kind of hubs uh, where journalists uh, send their drafts uh, of uh, news stories to, so that there is a centralized place to see all the articles written by the journalists across different newspapers in the same group. And then 
the state-sponsored digital initiative, the digital media outlet, could use any these kind of stories in this uh, hub, in this uh, kind of so central kitchen, uh, which gives the uh, advantage to this kind of uh, state-sponsored digital initiatives because they could be the first uh, to break out that kind of stories. So that's an example of how state is involved in the process, not only by giving money, but also by restructuring the newsroom. So um, that's one thing which is quite uh, impressive and very different from what happens in the West. Actually, talking about uh, uh, digital uh, transformation, I want to mention another thing. I just uh, said that in 2012, uh, since 2012, uh, the Xi Jinping came to power, and then uh, we saw a decline of journalism in China, right? Actually, I want to add that Xi Jinping is not the only reason why journalism declined in China. Actually, there's another reason, which arguably could be more important reason, which is the collapse of business model of journalism, which actually happens everywhere in the world. Right? Like we just said, uh, many of the best newspapers and magazines are actually commercial ones. And they follow the same business model, which is uh, the uh, advertising-based model. And uh, in China, the internet, social media developed very fast so that like in the US and UK, a lot of advertising revenue are also going to the large uh, social media apps like Weibo and WeChat. And newspapers in China, like Sassan Weekly, like Caijin, Caixin, are also losing advertising revenue, which actually created very adverse uh, environment for these newspapers. Because why, for example, 20 years ago, Sassan Weekly could publish some very bold, critical investigative pieces. Part of the reason is actually that they could earn a lot of money in the market and mm. they, will hand, they will handle like a large percentage of that money back to the state. So uh, if you are the money maker, if you can earn a lot of money, actually you will uh, occupy a better position in front of the propaganda department. So that's what happened in China during the recent 10 years. So it's not only the heightened political control, but also the story of the collapse of business model in the commercial news outlets. Which leaves the state-sponsored digital media in an even better place, presumably. And they have a closer relationship with the state compared to Southern Weekly or Taixin or one of these. Yeah, because they are not worried about money. Yeah. They have a lot of state funding. So actually, they attracted some uh, uh, journalists from those from Southern Weekly, from Taijing, Taixin. So uh, there's also a change. So that's also uh, kind of the talents uh, change the space, the place they work for. Yeah. Maria, when we're talking about this, then how much weight can we put on to Chinese journalism as a source of information, not just as a source of knowing what the state thinks, but as a source of actual information? For example, in the early days of the pandemic last year, Taising did a lot of good work in reporting that. But, you know, if they have the thumb of the state on them, what does that mean for the quality of their journalism? Is it journalism as we know it in the West? Yeah, I mean, that's always a complicated question. <laughs> I think with the, with the kind of work I've been doing on this topic, 
whenever I presented, people ask, you know, especially the more kind of, uh, I wouldn't say hostile audiences, but, you know, very Western-centric people would say, well, you know, this is not journalism at all. And they would even say that whatever you're studying is it's just propaganda, basically, like you're just using a different word. And I think that's really, um, it's really problematic because it just kind of makes for a really a, an application of Westernized kind of idea of journalism into pretty much every context in the world, you know, in China, there's a very different practice of journalism because of these constraints. So when I interviewed Taisin journalists in the past, they did see themselves as journalists, but in journalists in a different form than in the West, where they often think about themselves as also kind of helping or having solutions to fix governance issues or having a more constructive role. Constructive journalism is a term that also is invoked by the party. Uh, but solutions-oriented journalism is becoming pretty popular in, in many parts of the world, in Scandinavia and other places. It's not just a Chinese uh, kind of concept or idea. So this notion that you should include something that kind of helps address and fix the issues as opposed to only exposing um, watchdog style, which is, means just you know letting the reader know how bad things are and then kind of leaving it up to whoever to fix it. I think in China, there's kind of a higher responsibility for journalists to also include some solutions and some hopeful tones and some ways forward, right? So that which makes it actually quite quite difficult. Many of them actually spend time also in the West interning, um, doing various exchanges, doing going to grad school. And the materials used at journalism schools in China also include a lot of Western textbooks and articles. It's not just all kind of a propaganda kind of <laughs> knowledge. So it's, it's a very mixed and hybrid form. And I think this complexity is it's exciting and it's important to acknowledge because if we only treat it as propaganda because they are state-owned, or because they're partially state-owned, that misses a lot of this nuance. And also the reporting that was really excellent. I think a lot of the reports that came out, bites I seen were better than many Western reports because they had access to various mm. places and they did a lot of in-depth, you know, kind of fact-checking and reporting that is very hard for Western news outlet to access, especially now that many Western media are gone. Yes, and I found a lot of Tysing's early days pandemic reporting extremely instructive, and they did you know, get into trouble because of how candid sometimes they were um, with a few of their pieces being taken off by the censors afterwards. Kirchhen, given all of this, um, what did you make of Twitter's labelling of Chinese media sources as state media? This is a new thing that they've started doing with, I think, the best of intentions, but it does group groups like Taixing and Global Times, for example, together. Yes, I do think it's quite problematic to uh, give the same label to People's Daily, Global Times and Taixing. So yes, uh, technically you can call them state media because like Maria just said, uh, all media outlets, all the uh, newspapers and magazines have to be owned by the state. So uh, you can call them state media, but actually they do very different kind of reporting. Uh, actually, my advice for Twitter is that uh, it's never enough to provide just a label. Uh, I think Twitter should be providing more background information. For example, uh, there should be a link that users can click and maybe several graphs explaining, briefly explaining the media landscape in China and explaining why Caixin is kind of state-owned, but also it tries to publish a more critical reporting. And it is very different from Global Times and from uh, People's Daily. Speaking of Global Times, actually Global Times is very interesting. Global Times is often regarded as a kind of propaganda mouthpiece like that. But actually in the China's uh, media system, the party newspapers and the commercial newspapers uh, along this divide, actually Global Times belongs to the commercial newspaper type. So which means that Global Times and the Southern Weekly and the Caixin and Caixin are actually the same. They are commercialized newspapers, but the um, but of course their content is very different. <laughs> yes. It's just because they adopt very different business strategy, right? 
for Taiping, it's just weekly. They publish more uh, in-depth uh, critical reporting to attract audience. And for Global Times, they know nationalism themselves in China and everywhere in the world. So uh, that's their business strategy. Maria, what about what we hear? Citizen journalists, people who are not affiliated to a particular paper or an outlet, but they go do reporting, and with social media, they are enabled to do that. For example, there were quite a few citizen journalists who went to Wuhan last year. Yeah, there were, and they kind of, I think, sparked up a lot of the reporting as well because they shared so many images and videos of what was happening on the ground. To all of our kind of horror of just how severe the lockdown was, but also how full the hospitals were, and you know, similar images we're see- been seeing in the U.S. And now in India, I mean, you have citizen journalists really at the spot covering that. I think the difference in China that's important to note here is that they're not really legally allowed to do the reporting; that they don't have the journalism license of any kind. So it's actually illegal to do this kind of work. So they were detained. Several of them, I know for sure, were detained, and they they often face a more severe. Punishment because they don't have the media institution to protect them. So on the one hand, there's flexibility because they can kind of put things out there quickly, pictures, images, even stories. On the other hand, they they don't have protection of any kind of editor, like、uh, Kochang talked about the notion that they're gatekeepers, right? So basically, it's a much more vulnerable place to be at.、Um, mm. I think for a Chinese reporter as a citizen journalist. Kochang, when you were at Southern Weekly, were you ever, despite having your editor there, were you ever concerned about your safety or concerned about what you could or couldn't say, perhaps self-censoring as a result of that?、Um, actually, I was not concerned about my safety. I think it was. It is often uh, exaggerated uh, about how dangerous it is to be a journalist in China.、Uh, actually, I think it's quite dangerous if you are purely a citizen journalist,、mm. but. If you are affiliated with a media outlet, then you are in a much safer place. So,、um, of course, we do、uh, self censorship, but、uh, for most of the times,、uh, like I said, it's an editor's job.、Uh, so I can recall that、uh, one most extreme case for me encountering censorship is that in two thousand twelve, I wrote an article about a retired high level politician in China. He published a book, and then so I interviewed the publisher, the editor, and then wrote a story、uh, of this uh, uh, newly published book, and、uh, it was sent to different printing houses across、uh, China. Meaning that、uh, in many places the newspaper had already been printed, but actually in that midnight、uh, there was an order from the de- propaganda department. Uh, they asked us to kind of retract that piece.、Uh, so in the printing houses, they just stopped printing that, and、uh, they just destroyed all the newspapers that were uh, printed. Uh, so in order to retract that piece of article, and that was the most extreme case because, of course, destroying already printed newspapers. But also on the other hand. The article itself, I don't consider it as that sensitive,、mm. and I think in normal times, for example, if it was two thousand eleven, it might be totally okay to publish that article. And of course, my editor approved that. Right? Actually,、uh, why that piece was censored actually was because that was two thousand twelve, shortly before the power transition in China. So the Leadership,、uh, including Xi Jinping, of course, they were highly, highly cautious 
about anything retired politicians say. So in China, if you retired, you still kind of maintain some kind of power、mm. in the political circle, which makes this kind of、uh, book publishing article quite sensitive during that time. So that was the most extreme case、uh, that I can recall. So yes, it was safe for me, and it was、um, really rare that a journalist in China, for example, would get、uh, hit. Or get beaten, or even、uh, detain, get detained.、Uh, these those are highly、uh, rare cases.、Mm. Maria, but we do hear about those cases a lot. We hear about, for example, I think there was a young woman called Hayes Fan who worked for Bloomberg as a news assistant, not as a journalist, but she she was detained, disappeared for a few days, and that's just naming one of many. And the international indexes that show China has the most journalists in jail. So, I guess, could you talk a little bit about the worst case scenario? What what are the worst case scenarios for journalists who missteps? Right. Well, first I wanted to echo Kuchang that in my research I also didn't hear a lot of concerns with physical safety by journalists. But the worst case scenario that I've come across was detention, which is but not murder or kind of like severe physical punishment, right? But of course, detention is very severe too. So it's not to underestimate the severity of being detained for an uncertain time period because oftentimes once you're detained, you don't know how long that's for. I think what you hinted at, or not hinted at, you mentioned the foreign media and the stringers and journalists. Chinese journalists working for foreign media—it's—it's it's, it's a very, I think, tough situation to be in because they often don't get bylines.、Uh, a lot of them don't, but、mm-hmm. they do a lot of the research that's on the ground. That the the hardest job, the hardest labor, is coming from Chinese reporters.、Uh, they don't get the same credit as the Western journalist who's kind of essentially kind of guiding them in this reporting and gets the name on the ground. But also, they face much higher risks because detaining a foreign journalist. It's a big PR kind of you know mess up for the Chinese state. It looks pretty bad, but if you have detained a local stringer, a local journalist, it can scare the media outlet, but it doesn't have as high of a PR kind of cost or、uh, or effect on them. So that means that these particular reporters who are very talented and brave, I think, they are put in a really vulnerable position. So that's something that is worth noting as well. You know, because of the scale of China, right? The, the scale of population, it's often also those numbers appear as you know much higher than maybe the regular、mm. kind of encounters with、uh, detentions or physical assaults are. I mean, in the case of just to give you a comparison with Russia, where I've done some research as well, even though the numbers are also kind of varied,、um, a lot of reporters I spoke to would talk about the fear of. Physical assault or even death, like murder, because some of them have been murdered. Murdered, so their friends have been murdered. So they have a really kind of heightened sense of kind of this idea that it's really unsafe to be a reporter, who's critical. And of course, in Russia, they're critical of Putin. They're critical of his wealth, of corruption at the highest levels. They're not only sticking to local officials; it's a much、uh, higher risk. But they also face higher retributions. So I think that's something that I found was really quite fascinating. That you know, to ask Chinese journalists, I would say, well, you may be detained, but for the most part, there's so many other steps because there's so much self-censorship. And so many signals, and so many guardians, you know, gatekeepers. So there are kind of many, many walls one has to go through to still make a mistake that's so drastic that you're gonna go to jail. So、uh, some of the most high-profile cases include, for example,、uh, Cheng Yizhong and Shen Hao. Both of them were leading newspapers in the Southern Media Group.、Uh, Cheng Yizhong was the chief editor of Southern Metropolitan Daily, and Shen Hao was the head of the 21st Century Business Herald. Uh, which is also a newspaper、uh, affiliated with Southern Media Group.、Uh, they were both detained for economic reasons, for economic issues like corruption,、mm. uh, blackmail, this kind of so-called crimes. So、uh, we do not know if they were detained purely for this, or there were any kind of political reasons behind that. 
but uh, in China, if uh, a recent case last year, there was a case of Dai Zigong, who was the head of the Xinjiang Bao, the Beijing News. He was also detained for corruption for economic reasons. So that's a pattern. So yeah, for reporting on corruption or for being corrupt themselves. No. Uh, being corrupt them, right. uh, themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. I see. But but you're suggesting that you know it's we don't know what the links are that these people have these same 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 charges levied at them. Well, this was also part of the anti-corruption campaign, right? So I think it's, it it was in some ways easier to sweep people into this category because many officials were also swept into it. And I think this idea of kind of punishing individuals for or on corruption or kind of commercial. Rationale is also pretty common in many like authoritarian regimes. We see that there's like tax evasion charges. You know, look at Russia, for instance, you have Navalny. It's primarily a commercial charge, right, that he's corrupt. The corruption has been the main charge against him. Mm. He's, one of the charges was even that he's stealing lumber, yeah. which is pretty insane. Like, I don't know how one can steal lumber. But, you know, there's very absurd charges. In the Russian case, they're more absurd. I think in the China case, they sometimes make them sound fairly legitimate. So it's kind of takes a while to untangle what's real, what's not. Well, presumably, even if there's no threat of physical harm, detention alone would make you think about self-censorship, about potentially leaving journalism as a career, which I guess, Koten, brings me to my next question. Like, why did you want to be a journalist in China growing up? What was it about the career that drew you to that? Mm-hmm. Yes, actually, uh, I think many people in China uh, want to become a journalist. There are two important traditions associated with journalism. One is that, as, we, as I just said, journalism is still largely embedded in the political system. Uh, I can give you an example. So when I joined Southern Weekly, I get my kind of staff card, right, with, with my name, my photo, and uh, the newspaper I work for uh, on the card. And on the card, it also says my identity. It says my identity is actually cadre, mm. <laughs> right? So uh, which means that I am being a Southern Weekly journalist, I am considered as a cadre inside the Communist Party's political system. Uh, so for a lot of people joining the press, especially joining those more official newspapers, is a way to join the system. Mm. So um, that's a way for them to kind of contribute to the system or some actually want to reform the system from within. So that's why some people joined this kind of official media. So um, that's one tradition. The other tradition is actually the intellectual tradition. Maria just uh, mentioned part of this. It means that journalists in China actually thinking of themselves as similar to the intellectuals, mm. especially in the uh, imperial China, which means that uh, you have to shoulder the social responsibilities. So uh, that's an important tradition for journalists. So uh, I, I guess that many young people with such aspirations who really want to do something for the society actually they choose to join journalism. Mm. And I guess final thought to end on is just, are people reading it? We talked a little bit about the digital threat from advertising revenue for and the competitors that are coming, like Pompei, for example, which come from the state. Do people as uh, newsreaders, do consumers distinguish between, do they like the more independent journalism or do they just think, actually, now everything's on social media, everything's online, I'll just read whatever's fed to me. And if that is an outlet with very close relationship to the state, that's okay. I mean, from my personal experience, I don't feel like my family, for example, consume the news in the same way that my Western friends 
do and I, I wonder if that's a structural reason for that sure I mean I think the readership uh, kind of data is always hard to capture you know who is really reading it us and I think that's the same maybe for western media too it's when you ask them who's reading you like it's, it's sort of tricky if you think of New York Times who's reading New York Times I don't think it's a mainstream citizen that reads New York Times um, maybe more kind of people who are higher educated or interested in policy or politics uh, would read this kind of paper and same thing with Tyson I don't think it's aimed at like any average citizen I think it's actually pretty tough text to get through they're very long dense and they're sort of oriented towards I guess more elites, um, but also urban educated citizens who would be able to engage with this kind of writings. So I don't think they really aspire to kind of changing everybody's mind or being kind of a mainstream author that everybody reads. It's a bit more niche, but I think it's influential in a sense that that's the only you know source of information that's more uh, relatively more independent, more factual, more trustworthy. They have a certain readership, and they they often pride themselves on continuing to survive also financially in this difficult time. As Kajang mentioned, the industry is kind of dying, but uh, Tsaisin continues to, I think, somehow make it. So I think there's something there to be said about readership. Um, at the same time, I think it's, you know, when it comes to any sort of readership, most people consume entertainment. I think that's kind of the, the, the maybe the sad reality. But if you look around who's consuming what on like a Beijing subway, you see many people watching shows, TikTok, mm-hmm. you know, all kinds of different stuff that's nothing to do with media or, or information, you know, that's kind of legitimate or sources that are more political. So yeah, so I think the entertainment is kind of, the, the, it's a big force. And we didn't talk about this in this podcast, but Kajang and I have written about uh, party media authors also adjusting and setting up official WeChat accounts that are geared towards this entertainment genre that have a political, still some political messages, but they're much more entertaining. They have a lot of gaming techniques that they use. Uh, we, call, we discuss how they kind of cutify politics and even present C in a more kind of approachable way. It's a leader who is kind of a family man, but also you can trace his travels and so forth. So there's a lot of attempts, I think, of the party to also catch up with that trend. That there is this consumption of entertainment as the heart of overall kind of consumption of the media is entertainment. So why don't we adjust it? So I think that this adjustment has actually been, I think, pretty successful because a lot of these WeChat accounts hide the name of the official media group so you don't really know where they come from they have mm-hmm. a different name entirely and they look sometimes quite fun to consume they have all kinds of advice suggestions games and that's been more popular than say like you know people reading Ravindra Bao or Xinhua News. Kitten and Maria thank you very much for joining. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.